You know, of all the things that people struggle with internally, of all the things that people wrestle with inside of themselves, you will often find at the root of a, at least a significant portion of those struggles that there lies an identity crisis. A lot of people who struggle with things like depression and self-hatred and narcissism, a host of other internal battles, either do not understand or have not been willing to accept the person that God created them to be. They believe things about themselves that are not true while refusing to believe what is true about themselves, which can and often does have a profound effect on how those people decide to live their lives and what they end up achieving or not achieving in this life. Because when you spend your time and energy and focus constantly feeding a false identity, it becomes impossible to live a life of purpose. You can't become all that God created you to be if you can't accept the person that he created you to be. And yet this world is full of people who have chosen to believe a lie about themselves because of their past mistakes, because of their hurts, things they've experienced in this life, failures they've had, maybe something someone else said about them or to them, and they've accepted those lies, a false identity, and consequently they're missing out on the life that God has planned for them. It's actually nothing new. The first century Mediterranean world, the Jewish people generally regarded the Gentile people as unclean. And because of the Jewish purity laws, they really had very little to do with the Gentiles when it came to religious beliefs and practices. And at the same time, they understood themselves to be God's chosen people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation as described in Exodus 19.6 by God, by the way to Moses on Mount Sinai in reference to the Israelites. So as far as the Jews were concerned, the Gentiles might claim to be many things, but when it came to being God's people, when it came to being a priesthood, a holy and set-apart people, when it came to being the chosen ones of God, the Israelites had it on pretty good authority that that status was reserved for the Jews alone, not the Gentiles. Most everyone understood that, at least until a little more than halfway through the first century when the Apostle Peter, a Jew, writes a letter to predominantly Gentile Christians in the northern parts of uh, Asia Minor, quoting Exodus 19, but not as a description of the Jewish people. He was quoting it as a description of all followers of Jesus Christ, including all of those Gentiles he was writing to. So he says to these Gentile believers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then Peter said, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. <laughs> 
1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. In that one statement, Peter redefines the very identity of a whole lot of people. And I'm just telling you, we don't really have a cultural context in our society today to compare this to, to fully appreciate the gravity of what Peter was saying and the repercussions of what it meant to all people who would ever follow Christ, including those who were non-Jewish, that they had now become the chosen people of God. And of course, it wasn't because of anything they had done. They had no reason to boast about their new identity in Christ because it was all his doing, not theirs. And, and so even though we may not be able to uh, put ourselves in their shoes culturally, we can certainly identify with those first century Gentile Christians spiritually because for all of us who follow Christ today, we've experienced the very same transformation from being not a people to now being God's chosen people, from being unclean to being made clean, from being unacceptable to being accepted. And like those early Gentiles, we cannot claim this new identity, this new status by any merit of our own, because like them, we have been chosen by God alone as we've been redeemed by the work of Christ alone. Now, probably most Christians today would say we understand all of that. Right? We've heard that many times. We know that we belong to God because we've been chosen by God, which means we can now claim the status God's people, which is true, and it is wonderful. But is that it? Is that all there is to it? I am now a child of God. I'm a member of his family I'm one of the chosen ones, which means I will go to heaven and there I will live forever. I'll eat Krispy Kreme donuts every day and never gain any weight. It's going to be great. No more tears, no more pain, no more death, no more calories. The whole package. I am saved. <laughs> Don't get too excited. Right? I walked the aisle, I said the prayer, I joined the church, I'm a Christian. That is my new status, which is actually profoundly important that we do understand that and claim that, absolutely. But, but does that mean I can now go on about my business, living my life largely for myself as a good moral Christian person? I vote for the right people, I listen to the right music, I say the right things, I hang out with other Christians, because that's what you do when you have the status, the, the Christian status. Because, look, a lot of people are culturally Christian. They do all of the things that we associate with people who claim the status of Christian, and actually there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. We're, we're supposed to, in fact, be set apart by God, for God. So please understand, I'm not knocking lifestyles that honor God. On the contrary, I commend that. What I'm asking is, is that all there is to our new identity? Is that all that we were chosen for, to be good, moral people, to be culturally Christian, to say the right things, to go to the right places, to hang out with the right people, and to listen to the right music until one day we all go to heaven. Is that all that we were chosen for? I don't think so. We have been chosen, yes, but chosen for what? 
because our identity in Christ is about far more than just having a new status. Right? When Peter told the Gentile believers about being chosen, he also told them what they were chosen for. He said, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, that sounds like we were actually chosen for a purpose. It's one thing to say that I belong to God, that I've been chosen by him, that I've been redeemed by him. And listen, that may all be true and very important, but for what purpose? Have you ever stopped to ask God, why did you choose me? What have I been chosen for? Because look, I'm telling you, we've not been chosen simply for some kind of status. No, we've been chosen for a purpose, and those who are chosen by him have to decide, will the rest of my natural life revolve around a status or a purpose? Because those are two very different things. Living for status and nothing more in the end will cause you to live your life doing things for yourself and often feeling like a failure. Living for a purpose will cause you to give your life away doing things for others. That's the difference between status and purpose. We live in a culture chock full of people who are living for status of one variety or the other. And again, as Christians, our status as children of God couldn't be any more important than it is. So I'm not minimizing that, but you haven't been chosen just to be chosen. You've been chosen uh, simply to call yourself a Christian. No, you've been chosen for a purpose. Something bigger than ourselves. Your life has a purpose far beyond just serving yourself. And once you find out what that purpose is and you embrace it, you will never be the same again. Jesus was trying to get this across to his disciples when he said, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you. Why, Jesus? Did you choose me and appoint me? That you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. John 15, 16. In other words, I've chosen you for a purpose to spend the rest of your life doing things that abide. Those are things that far outlive you. Things that remain long after you have left this earth. It's called living for a purpose. It's far riskier, by the way, uh, to live that way than simply saying, I am saved. I made it. I'm good. There's nothing really left for me to do other than to be morally and politically and socially conservative. And yet that has been the standard for much of the church in the West for a long time now. But look, if you want to discover your purpose in this life, you have to be willing to live for far more than just a status. You have to be willing to actually follow Jesus Christ no matter where that takes you, no matter what that looks like, and no matter what risk is involved because you weren't chosen for a status. You were chosen for a purpose, which is the only kind of life we should ever want to live as God's chosen people. And if you're wondering what that actually looks like, well, we're going to find out in our story today as we continue our sermon series working our way through the book of Joshua as our main character in this part of the story, a woman named Rahab. 
discovers her purpose and goes after it with such conviction that she ends up risking her own life. And yet, as we'll see, that was the very life she was chosen to live. Let's turn there together then. We'll pick up the story right where we left off last week at Joshua chapter 2. And we'll begin reading the first two verses. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So you'll remember from last week that Moses has died. And so God commissions Joshua as the new leader of the people of Israel. And he tells Joshua to prepare the people to cross the river Jordan to take possession of the land that has been promised to them. But he was also clear with Joshua that they would have to be strong and courageous on this conquest because taking possession of the land would mean they were going to have to fight for what was promised to them. In other words, it wasn't going to be easy or effortless to fulfill the purpose in your life just because you were God's chosen people. And so Joshua, in preparation for taking the promised land, sends two spies to gather intelligence about the land they are to take possession of, and especially the city Jericho. Why? Because Jericho happened to be the most heavily fortified city in Canaan, okay? And it was going to be their first point of attack. So when the spies get to Jericho... They enter the house of a prostitute named Rahab, not to commit immorality, but to commit espionage, you see. A, a prostitute's house was frequented mostly by soldiers. That meant if you were seeking information about the military in a particular city, the best source of that information, second only to the military headquarters themselves, was the local brothel. And yet, why Rahab's house? Why this particular house? Surely there were many other prostitutes in the city, right? Well, there's a 20-volume uh, historiographical work called Antiquities of the Jews. Fascinating reading. It's written by a first-century Jewish historian named Flavius Josephus, and he tells us in that writing that Rahab was also an innkeeper. In other words, her house was more than just a brothel. It was also used as a roadside inn. And so for the spies, whose mission was to enter the city undetected, remember verse 1 says, Joshua sent two men secretly as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So this was meant to be a covert mission which then makes perfect sense that they would go to a roadside inn which happened to be owned and operated by a prostitute because uh, there they could find lodging, first of all, and also potentially useful information about the military there. So it was a seemingly brilliant move on the spy's part, except for the fact that the very first part of their mission was singularly unsuccessful. In fact, it was a complete failure. These were spies on a secret mission to covertly enter the city unnoticed. And yet no sooner had they arrived at Rahab's house that Joshua tells us it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Well done, fellas. Right? They blew it. 
They totally botched the mission up to this point, and it wasn't looking good for them, as the king and his men were on to them and also on their way to them. Let's keep reading and see what happens next. Verses 3 through 7. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from, and when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them under the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on their way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So the king sends his men to Rahab's house straight away to capture the spies. And Rahab, in that moment, is faced with a choice. She can turn the spies in. This woman, who happened to be at the very bottom of the barrel in stature in her community, a prostitute running her business out of her own house, she would instantly gain status among her people and her king as a hero if she turned these men over to the authorities. But that's not what she does. Because Rahab is discovering her purpose in this world. She senses in that moment when a profound decision must be made. She senses something greater than status standing before her. She's beginning to realize her purpose in this life. And so she decides in that moment to pursue that purpose wherever that may lead her. You see, God had chosen Rahab. Not just to come to faith, although we will see that happen, that's certainly part of it, but he chose her for a purpose that was bigger than just herself. Okay, on their own, the spies failed miserably. They failed to remain undetected, but God chose Rahab to provide protection for his people. So she hides the spies. And the fact that she had stalks of flax stacked up on her roof and scarlet cord, a dyed scarlet red cord, as we'll read about in a moment, is a pretty clear indication that she was also manufacturing dyed linen, colored linen, right? Linen is actually uh, an organic material that is made from the dried fibers of flax plants. And so the more, and the more you learn about Rahab, the more remarkable of a person she appears to be. Obviously, very industrious, highly intelligent, capable, and a quick-thinking woman. She runs multiple businesses, although not all honorable, out of her house. And when the king's men come to collect the spies, she hides them in the flax that was stacked up for drying on the roof before it could be used for making the linen. And then she makes an impressive lie up on the spot to convince the king's soldiers that the spies had left. And I just want to mention here, there are a lot of people, scholars even, who have had a really hard time with the fact that Rahab lied to protect these spies. First of all, she'd done far worse things in her lifetime than lying. <laughs> really, guys. And secondly, 
Her lie to protect the innocent was not all that different from the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1 who refused to kill the male Hebrew babies ordered by Pharaoh, and then they lied to Pharaoh about it, and yet the passage says that because of what they did, God dealt well with the midwives, Exodus 1.20. It's not really any different than the scores of men and women who hid Jews in their homes in Nazi Germany in order to save them from extinction, and yet they lied to the German soldiers about the fact that they were harboring God's people in their houses. Okay? The fact that Rahab lies here to protect God's men should be no reason for us to believe that she was doing anything other than fulfilling her God-given purpose in that moment because God had chosen her to provide protection for his people. The truth is it's hard not to admire her. She's risking her own life by doing what she did. And again, she didn't have to. She could have turned them in and been considered a hero among her people, but Rahab chose purpose over status, which is the very same thing that God is calling us to do today. Even at times when it costs us something, when, when there's risk involved. Look, as his church, the body of Christ, we're supposed to look after one another. Right? There's no avoiding the fact that when you do that, when you look after other people, that will involve your time, your energy, your talents, often your money, all to the exclusion at times of using all of those things for serving yourself. That's a risk because you can expend your time and energy and talents and money serving others and never receive back from them what you've given. That's called ministry. Right? That's a fact of being a part of the body of Christ. There's always risk involved with loving other people. But listen, you can have great risk in your life without great reward. That is true. But you cannot have great reward in your life without great risk. Living a life of purpose is risky. And you won't always see an immediate return on your investment, but in the end, when you live the way that God created you to live, when you live for God's purposes in your life, you will be rewarded far beyond anything you've invested. Not to mention that all along the way, you will know what it is to live a life of purpose, which can be incredibly fulfilling in and of itself, which is also not something many people can claim. Unfortunately, not by a long shot. Okay, how many people do we hear about who end their own lives, who are rich and famous and had everything they could ever want materially? One after another after another. Why? Because there's no fulfillment. Listen, there is no fulfillment in using everything that God has given you to serve yourself. That never makes people truly happy or content. Never. The fulfillment that people are looking for, that people in this world are hungry for, only comes through Christ. By knowing him and by following him. It's called living with purpose, which will involve great risk at times in our lives, but that's what living with purpose looks like. 
something Rahab was learning as she risked her own life to protect these men of God. Let's keep on in the story. Verses 8 through 14. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So the men were sent secretly to spy out the land. Not only did they immediately blow their cover, but their mission to survey and make an assessment of all the land, including Jericho, was an abject failure as well. They hadn't gotten anywhere in terms of their secret assignment before being identified by the enemy. And now, instead of surveying all the land and even Jericho, all they can do is hide under a pile of plants on Rahab's roof just to avoid being caught and killed. But then, completely unprompted by the spies, Rahab goes up to the roof just before they lay down for the night and reveals to them the disposition of the people of Jericho toward the Israelites, which was incredibly valuable information to have for someone who was planning an attack on the city. Okay? On their own, the spies failed to obtain any useful information about Jericho, but God chose Rahab to provide revelation for his people. Again, Rahab didn't have to tell these men anything. Furthermore, they were not in a position to demand anything from her, and they weren't asking. At this point, they're just trying to stay alive. But Rahab is for the first time in her life living for a purpose greater than herself. And she's using her time and energy and talent and intellect and resources to serve that purpose instead of serving herself for once. Now, she does do something self-serving as we just read for her and her family. She, she's trying to save their own lives which is not only understandable, of course, but perfectly acceptable, right? We're, we're supposed to take care of ourselves and our families even as we serve other people, besides which God had chosen her for even a greater purpose, which we're going to see as we continue. So there's no wrong motive here in Rahab asking to have their lives spared when the attack from Israel happens. The point is what she was already doing by hiding them on her roof risking her own life by lying to the authorities about it and now giving them a place to stay for the night was certainly all by itself plenty enough for her to ask for considerations when the city is attacked. 
She did not have to offer this new revelation about her people and the fact that they were shaking in their boots over the battle that was looming. At at this point in history, the Amorites, that was the people inhabiting all of Canaan, they were at their height of power. So hearing firsthand from an Amorite living in the most fortified city in Canaan that the Amorite people were actually terrified about the Israelites, that was extremely significant information. And so unprompted, even though she didn't have to, by her own volition, she tells them all about it because Rahab hadn't simply decided to commit a purposeful deed. She made a decision to live a purposeful life from that moment on. It's the difference between people who try to do a good deed from time to time to ease their own conscience about the fact that they spend the rest of their time living for themselves. It's the difference between that and people who actually live out their entire lives with purpose. Everything they do serves a greater purpose, which is how we're supposed to live. The apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus, we are his workmanship, he said, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. The word walk in that verse is the ancient Greek word peripateo. It refers to how a person actually lives out their life. So Paul's saying, hey, we were created for a purpose and we should live our entire lives according to that purpose. It's not just about doing a good deed once in a while and then hoping that at the end of our lives on earth, maybe the good deeds will outweigh the bad. No, we're not earning points on a scorecard in heaven that will one day be used to determine whether or not we get in. That's not how it works. Jesus Christ lived his life for the ultimate purpose to save us once and for all. There's no such thing as earning our way into heaven, which means the way that we live our lives is not a function of earning points with God. It's a function of honoring God by living the life that he created us to live. And that's what Rahab was choosing to do here. But, but why? What changed for this pagan prostitute whose culture worshipped many deities? Why now decide to live a purposeful life dedicated to Yahweh? the God of the Hebrews. She explains it in the passage we just read by way of a remarkable understanding that she displays of who God is and what he had done. By the way, her explanation there happens to be one of the longest uninterrupted statements by a woman in biblical narrative, and it is full of the language and theology of the Pentateuch, the Hebrew Bible, particularly uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, for an Amorite, for an Amorite woman, Rahab had an impressive grasp on Scripture, and through those Scriptures and the testimony of others concerning God's work on behalf of the Jews, Rahab had come to faith in the one true God, which she makes clear in verse 11 when she confesses that the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab wasn't merely trying to do a good deed. No, by faith in God, she understood that she had been chosen for something greater. And therefore, by that newfound faith, she made a decision to live the rest of her life 
no matter how long or short that would be, serving the purpose that she was created for, which as we'll see in a moment, was much, much bigger than just her life on this earth, all right? If you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you have been chosen by God for a purpose. But the only way you can live your life according to that purpose is by believing, first of all, that you are who he created you to be. Too many Christians don't believe in the man or woman that God created them to be. They look in the mirror and all they see is failure, rejection, past mistakes, unworthiness, insecurity, fear, which is what living for ourselves gets us. Just ask Rahab, this prostitute running multiple businesses out of her home, trying to build a life for herself, and it had gotten her nowhere. She was the scourge of the town. But when she encountered the word of God, that word described her life as something altogether different than the lies she'd been believing all those years. And then when she heard the stories about God's people and all that he'd done for them and through them, her heart was stirred and her faith came alive. That's why I believe she was cool as a cucumber even under the most intensely stressful situation when the king's soldiers came to her house looking for the Jews that she was illegally harboring on her roof. She didn't panic. I don't think she broke a sweat because Rahab had already come to faith in God and when those Hebrew spies came knocking on her door, she knew the true purpose of her life was knocking on the door. She knew that God had created her life for something more than the one she tried to fashion for herself. And I believe when she looked in the mirror that evening for the very first time in her life, instead of seeing failure and rejection and past mistakes and unworthiness and insecurity and fear, I honestly believe when she looked in the mirror that evening for the very first time in her life, she saw something beautiful. Something strong and courageous, something with a purpose that was far bigger than herself. And I'm telling you, this is the watershed moment that every single one of us needs to have to understand that God created you for a purpose that is greater than whatever existence you can scratch out for yourself in this lifetime. When He created you, He created something beautiful. When he created you, he created something with the potential to change the world. When he created you, he created a purpose for you that is so full of risk and reward, sacrifice and fulfillment, battles and victories, that it's the only life worth living. But look, the only way you'll ever live with that kind of purpose is by first believing that you are who he says you are, chosen by God for a purpose. And the way you come to believe that, by the way, is the same way Rahab came to believe it. By his word, the testimony of others, and the faith that follows it. It's faith in what he said, faith in what he's done that will cause you to see yourself in an entirely new light, and then everything changes.
The moment you begin to live with purpose, which is what we're witnessing in Rahab as the story continues. Let's read verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. She said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you've made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. She said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And then she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned, and they came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, And they told him all that had happened. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So the spies survived the search from the king's men only because of Rahab. They gained valuable information about the Amorites only because of Rahab. And now with whatever escape plan they may have had being cut off as they're basically now trapped in Rahab's house, Rahab offers a way out of the city and a plan for them to be able to return to their own people unharmed. So again, Rahab tells the spies what they must do next to survive. And so even though the spies' escape plan was basically a miserable failure, leaving them otherwise trapped inside this enemy city in a prostitute's home, God chose Rahab to provide salvation for his people. She told them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. Okay, to return back to Joshua uh, from Jericho, one would have to travel east from the city to the fords at the river because that was the only place in the Jordan anywhere near Jericho where the water was shallow enough to cross. And of course, the king's men knew that, so they went there to wait in ambush of the Israelite spies. Obviously, Rahab knew that as well because she sent them there on a fool's errand in order to protect the spies. And so when it comes time for the spies to leave, she tells them to go west uh, into the opposite direction, the Jordan Valley, which is where the hills were, which also happened to be filled with uh, uh, caverns, grottos, and small caves where they could hide for three days until their pursuers would be convinced that they'd already crossed the river ahead of them and then give up the search and come back to Jericho. So once again, Rahab acts with great purpose, ultimately saving the spies from capture. And yet before they leave, she strikes an agreement with them that when the Israelites attack the city, that they spare Rahab and her family. And of course, the spies agree, telling her to tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, meaning one of the cords 
that had been dyed red for making linen in order that the Israelites could determine which house she was in. Uh, in biblical times, it was common for cities to be fortified by what was called casemate walls. They were uh, double walls with a large space in between. And then they would build cross walls connecting the two main walls to add strength but also to create chambers all throughout the wall. So a lot of the chambers were used for storage, but many of them were used as dwellings with windows on the outsides of the wall. So you can imagine marching up to this ancient city with these massive stone walls and looking at an endless number of windows on the outer stone wall, all looking the same, right? So uh, something needed to signify to them which window, which house was Rahab's so that soldiers would know to protect her in that house. So she ties the cord in the window. And it's not just any old cord. It happens to be a scarlet cord. Jewish rabbinical tradition correlates the scarlet cord with the blood that was placed on the doorpost and the lintels to protect the Israelites from the death angel on the evening of the first Passover in Exodus 12, 7, while the early church fathers, uh, Clement of Rome, Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, uh, Origen, they all wrote that the scarlet cord was also a symbol of the blood of Jesus. Some really fabulous early imagery in this story as Rahab brings salvation to these spies, imagery that both looks back to the central work of salvation in the Old Testament the deliverance of the Jews out of Egypt, and also imagery that looks forward to the central work of salvation in the New Testament, the work of Christ on the cross. And just as God chose an unexpected candidate for his first act of salvation for his people, Moses, a stuttering shepherd, just as he chose an unexpected candidate for his ultimate act of salvation for his own people, his son, Jesus Christ, here he chooses Rahab, right in the middle, an unexpected candidate, a pagan prostitute to bring salvation to his people. Why? Because that's the way God works. He chooses the broken, the rejected, the lost, the hurting, the lowly, the unqualified, and he gives them a purpose far greater than anything we could ever achieve on our own. The spies thought they were going to Jericho undercover to gain information and then slip out unnoticed. But instead, their entire mission was a wretched failure on all accounts were it not for Rahab. This is what we need to understand about this story. Why would God have Joshua send spies to Jericho to fail on every single objective? At the end of the day, what was the point of the spies? Everything they tried to do was a failure. What was the point? They nearly ruined the entire mission. What was the point of sending the spies at all? The point was Rahab. She was the reason for all of it because long before any of this had happened, God chose Rahab, a pagan prostitute, 
rejected by her culture, but God chose her for a purpose to not only bring protection and revelation and salvation to these Israelites, but do you know one of those two spies is believed to be Salmon, the leader of the tribe of Judah, the same man that later marries Rahab, and together they have a son named Boaz who marries Ruth, who has Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David, the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. Because Rahab recognized her true purpose in this life and did what she did for those spies. Her purpose was fulfilled. And by the way, everything that she did for them, they later did for her in the coming days. When the city was attacked, they brought protection to her and her family. She was integrated into God's people, bringing further revelation of the truth of who God was and who she was. And by including her in their family, they brought salvation to her and her entire household, out of which came the Christ. You want to talk about living with purpose? Rahab is the poster child for someone who lived with purpose, even though she had to be the most unlikely candidate completely unqualified by cultural and religious standards, broken by years and years of wanton sin, an outcast in her community, haunted by her past, with no prospects for the future, and yet not one ounce of any of that made one bit of difference when the time came. Why? Because no matter what culture or religion or the community or your past says about you, listen to me, if God has chosen you, then you have a purpose that is greater than anything you've done in your past, greater than anything anyone else ever says about you, greater than any lack of qualification and greater than any obstacle that may be standing in your way. That is what it means to be chosen by God. You now belong to him and everyone who belongs to him has a purpose to fulfill that is bigger than you, bigger than your wildest dreams. So why do we sell ourselves short? By living a life trying to attain to some sort of status when you can live a life of purpose. God chose Rahab for a life beyond anything she could have ever possibly imagined. What has he chosen for you? Have you ever asked him? Are you just so busy trying to get from one day to the next that you never take the time to ask or to listen? Rahab's life was completely crazy. But somewhere in the midst of it all, she came to understand who God was and who she was. I'm telling you, we all need to have that watershed moment in our own lives. What is keeping you from your purpose? Is it your past? Is it your hurt? Is it your failures? Is it something someone else has said to you? Do you feel completely unqualified? Because that was Rahab all the way. 
And yet once she realized her purpose, not one single bit of any of that mattered. So why don't you go ahead and just clean the slate. Just push all of those excuses off the table right now and accept the fact that you've been chosen by God for a greater purpose than any of those things. And then begin, uh, begin living your life with that purpose. It won't be easy. But it's what you were born for. The Apostle Paul said he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Do you get that? Do you understand what that means? It means no matter what seems to be standing in your way today, God says, I have chosen you. Even before I created this good earth, I chose you to live a life of great purpose. And the only thing that can keep you from living it is you. So let go of everything else and embrace your purpose because that is what you have been chosen for. Let's pray.